Hey everybody, it's January 1st, 2019. Happy New Year. If you're anything like me, you're probably pretty excited about making this year even better than the last. And if you're a listener to this podcast, that means getting into the outdoors. But at the moment of this taping, the United States of America is in the second week of a partial government shutdown that's expected to last for at least a few weeks longer. In addition to the federal employees who will go throughout this period without a paycheck, every national park and all of our national monuments will be closed. The reality of a nation without parks got me thinking about an interview I conducted more than a year ago. John Jarvis is the former director of the National Park Service, appointed by President Barack Obama back in 2008. Jarvis served in that position through 2016, and now, as a private citizen, I asked him to tell me a little bit about his career and how he got started. Well, I grew up in Virginia, down in the Shenandoah Valley, in a very sort of classic outdoor family. My dad was a barber in a very small town, uh, the town of Glasgow, Virginia. And he was very much of a, you know, hunting, fishing kind of outdoorsman. Our home was in, in the country and backed up against a, a farm that my uncle owned. And so I grew up working on the farm, uh, you know, feeding cattle and, you know, putting up hay. And we lived right on the river, the Maury River. And so, you know, I was, uh, I just was outdoors. I mean, all the time. I mean, that was just where I went and loved being in the outside. And I think... One of the real sort of poignant lessons from my dad was to go out into the forest, you know, find a level piece of ground under a tree, clear out around you all the twigs and branches, anything that might make noise, and just sit down and be quiet. And it usually took about 20 minutes or so would, would pass and then the forest would come alive because it, they, they no longer knew you were there, right? And so you could just sit quietly. And you know, I've had birds land on me and you know deer walk by and turkeys go by or you know, squirrels come out or whatever. You know, and so you just sort of become part of that, of that scene. And I think it, it sort of instilled in me a relationship with nature uh, that basically said, okay, this is what I want to do for my career. Jarvis began, as most of us do, with a profound love of the outdoors. He went to the College of William and Mary, where he earned a degree in biology. After graduation, he took a long cross-country road trip and wound up in Washington, D.C., where his older brother worked for the National Parks Conservation Association. There, Jarvis worked a bunch of manual labor jobs as a mechanic and a welder for a local bus company. But he was still looking for a steady gig, maybe something in the outdoors. And my brother said, do you ever think about working for the Park Service? And, and I said, no, I didn't. And I was also thinking about going back to grad school at the time and was applying for grad school. But I needed, I needed a year off. I, I had just you know, done that. And so I applied for a seasonal job at the Park Service and got hired at the Bicentennial Information Center in 1976, the nation's bicentennial. And uh, that was 41 years ago. I've worked for them ever since. <laughs> Thank you.
Throughout his career of more than 40 years, John Jarvis had worked both as a law enforcement officer and a natural resources biologist. He was a superintendent of Mount Rainier National Park in Ashford, Washington, Craters of the Moon National Monument and Preserve in Idaho, and the wrangell St. Elias National Park and Preserve in Alaska. Jarvis finished his tour of duty as the 18th director of the National Park Service during the Obama administration under secretaries of the Interior Ken Salazar and Sally Jewell. Now as executive director of the Institute for Parks, People and Diversity at the University of California at Berkeley, he has big plans to lead the conservation movement well into the future. I'm James Edward Mills, and you're listening to The Joy Trip Project. I think what makes this conversation with John Jarvis very timely is the fact that the 19th director of the National Park Service will be appointed later this year. David Vela, superintendent of Grand Teton National Park, was confirmed by the U.S. Senate in November. Hopefully, at some point after the current government shutdown has ended, Vela will soon be on the job. So I was curious to know, what do you do when you first become appointed as director of the National Park Service? It's a great question. Uh, and I think everybody in the Park Service, works in the Park Service, says, well, if I was director, this is what I would do. Well, <laughs> you know, so, you know, I had certainly done that. And then I like all of a sudden, well, I am the director. Now, now what do I do, right? Right. Um, so um, I thought about it a lot, a lot. And one of the things, I'm a little bit of a student of history, so I went back and I looked at what past directors had done, what their priorities were, whether or not they had executed on them. I have some of those people I actually you know, reached out to and had long conversations with. So I, I decided I was going to sort of use this. I knew there was the centennial. I knew I had, you know, the first African-American president opportunity to engage him and Michelle. They're very oriented towards youth, health, uh, diversity, fairness, equity, all those kinds of issues. Ken Salazar, Hispanic, uh, risen from um, from rural ranching roots uh, uh, in uh, in Colorado, um, clearly had a, a set of values that I could I could relate to. Um, so I, I looked at I sort of looked at sort of my four the four pillars is you know one was the, the workforce itself uh, that obviously uh, we needed to diversify uh, the workforce and we needed to focus on the workforce. One, this is a little bit of a side element, but very important, is that when I came on as the director of the Park Service, the Park Service was the most dangerous organization to work for in the federal government. We killed or injured more employees than any agency other than the military in the federal government. And so safety 
it, it's a culture thing in the service is that people are so mission oriented that they're willing to truly sacrifice themselves for the job. Uh, and we were seeing that. So that was going to be one of the things within workforces I was really going to take on is the safety and wellness uh, of our employee workforce. The second was obviously stewardship of the both natural and cultural resources. And within that sort of, uh, you know, sort of bucket of, of stewardship, uh, recognizing climate change, being very open about the impact of climate change, and beginning to shape the new policies around how we're going to manage in light of that. Build a body of science. I brought in the first science advisor ever to the director of the National Park Service who would advise me independently on these issues and then really build up that, that side of the organization. The third was, uh, was relevancy and this was all about making sure that the Park Service was telling the American story. And there are a lot of stories that we were not telling. Stories of women, minorities, uh, the darker periods of our history uh, needed to be reshaped and reframed. And that, we, that our portfolio of parks was not representative either of the contributions of minorities and women. I mean, you look at the, the, the Park Service administers the uh, National Register of Historic Places and the National Historic Landmarks Program. Less than 3% less than of the total inventory are related to the contributions of women and minorities. At this point in the conversation, I had to stop Jarvis to have him explain what he just said. Only 3% of National Historic Sites were devoted to women and minorities? There are about 75,000 places on the National Register of Historic Places, and there are about, I think, roughly 2,000 places that are National Historic Landmarks. Less than 3% of that total represent the contributions of women and minorities. I can't even tell you how profoundly disappointing that is. Yeah. <laughs> and well, and I can tell you why. Please because do. Because I, I, I chased it. But let me finish my... my no, so that was the, so relevancy. So number three, mm-hmm. and these are not necessarily in priority order, of course. they're all equal. Uh, and then the fourth was education. Uh, I do believe the Park Service has an education mission uh, that uh, our role is to help the public understand complex issues. And so I hired the first associate director for education, uh, a professional, uh, and we really began to, sh- to reshape our role in, uh, in public education um, as an asset to, to Parks' classrooms and education mission. Anyway, so that's kind of the form. So back to your question on the relevancy issue. So, and I'll, I'll tell this a little bit as a war story. The, the way that places get onto the National Register of Historic, the list of National Historic, the National Register of Historic Places, they are places we manage or own. They can be, but it could be that house over there across the street that's privately owned that belong to belong to and that person did something really important sure. right the other way it can get on is that house is representative of a particular type of architecture okay or it was designed by a, a famous architect you know like falling water you know frank lloyd wright's sort of opus mm-hmm. right that's on the national register of historic places that's actually a national historic landmark and the landmark is a subset of the historic register of the very best of those so there's a staff in the Park Service that reviews nominations that come from individuals, from the State Historic Preservation Offices, from the National Trust of Historic Preservation, and there, there are certain themes that are created that they focus on. 
And so I went to that as the director and I said, so what's the next theme you're working on uh, that you're getting ready to uh, call for nominations? And they said, summer homes. And I said, really? Yeah, and they said, there's, you know, there's these architectural wonders that on Cape Cod and in the White Mountains. And I said, yeah, that's, those are all from the rich people, right? Right? They were, right? And I said, well, you're not doing that. <laughs> that's not going to be your theme. I said, we're going to launch a series of theme studies, and we're going to start with the contributions of Hispanics. Then we're going to do LGBT. Uh, we're going to do women. And uh, we'd already done African-American at one point, so we still had a, a body of work in the African-American community that we were still working on. But here are just some gaps in the system. And so we launched these studies and, and began to identify properties and individuals that we could then, and we set the goal to move that, I know this is kind of low, low bar, but from 3% to 10%. That, but to still that's thousands of properties that we had to, and then we reformulated some of our grant money <clears throat> to go out to states to the state historic preservation offices to find those places, to find those stories. And so over my tenure, I don't remember how many we got, but we got a lot. We, we really, we just completely uh, refocused the program around sort of filling this gap. And it was in part so that these places are preserved because that's, that's one key. I mean, I, I'll tell you one story, the Frank Kameny house. So Frank Kameny, was uh, a very, very early gay activist in the D.C. area. And he's revered in the, in the LGBT community, but basically, other than that, he's kind of unknown. But he, at his home in the D.C. area, ran um, a, uh, a newspaper. He was a gay activist. He, you know, it was safe haven. You know, in that, in that period, this is, you were talking in the 50s, and, you know, it was just, coming out was not, not safe, and, and Frank was, uh, was a leader in that. So, you know, we researched it, we uh, nominated his house, put it on the National Reg Register of Historic Places, and it just, you know, I've had people just walk up to me and just thank me, or hug me, or say thank you for that, you know, that this gives recognition. And then we took all of that one step further, and we began to create, use the President's power under the Antiquities Act, to create new units of the National Park Service. And so we began to identify where are the places that, so Harriet Tubman, Underground Railroad, Colonel Charles Young, Buffalo Soldiers, Cesar Chavez, Belmont Paul Women's Equality, Stonewall as the LGBT site. We were just working our way down the list of sites and Pullman and, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was really fun to go to the Oval Office and you know, present the president uh, with this uh, opportunity to use the powers under the Antiquities Act to establish these new sites. And I, I remember bringing one of the very early ones to him for signature. And, uh, and it, I, I think it was either Colonel Young or Harry Tubman. And uh, he said, you got any more of those? <laughs> I said, I got a lot of those. Wow. And, uh, and so, you know, ultimately we created 22 new park units uh, in, my, in my tenure with the bulk of them telling a piece of the American story. One unit that was most interesting to me was Fort Monroe. 
And that was the very first unit that Absolutely. the that president was, signed. We had, and we, had it was, to, we had to break him in with that one. Okay, but that was almost three years into yeah. his administration. Right. You know, and, and I'm very curious to know, um, like, first of all, like, Fort Monroe to me is a very fascinating site because it is arguably the place where slavery in North America started and ended. And, ended. Yep. and that to me is utterly fascinating yep. because, you know, you have in, I believe it was in the year 1619, the very first transaction yep. of Dutch traders right. selling um, Africans to Virginia colonies. They trading were for they food. trading for food because that they were they were in dire straits on the ship. Absolutely. Otherwise so, they were going to take them to the to South America. Precisely. So th- yeah. this this was basically a incidental transaction mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that basically began the North American slave right, trade. Right. And that was Fort Comfort at the time. Fort Comfort, what, precisely. Yeah. And then fast forward to eighteen sixty three, where you have escaped slaves going to Fort Monroe to turn themselves in as you know basically contraband yep. from the So let me let me tell that story because I know it. So, I, I, you, you'll so, do better uh, than I can. So sure. uh, the you know Fort Monroe was uh, a, you know it's it's a star fort it's got a moat uh, it's it's out on the the, the tip of the island uh, so it's the only um, northern fort south of the Mason-Dixon line that did not fall to the Confederacy. So war is underway the commanding officer is Colonel Benjamin Butler, uh, who was an attorney. Uh, he was supposedly cross-eyed, so that was one of his, his key things, as you can never really tell whether he was looking at you when he was cross-examining, uh, and, uh, uh, and very smart, uh, self-taught uh, uh, attor- attorney. So he's sitting in his office uh, in the, in, in, at Fort Monroe, middle of the night, three slaves uh, walk across the uh, causeway, escape, knock on the door, ask to be um, protected. Of course, they're in the Commonwealth of Virginia, uh, where, and, and in the United States, slavery was still legal, right? right? So, and certainly Butler knew that. And so he formulates, basically on the spot, the contraband decision. So he basically says property that can be used by the enemy in the execution of the war uh, can be confiscated. Um, and so... Clearly, these individuals were viewed as property uh, in in the South, uh, and they could be used to, as they were by the, by the Southern armies, to build uh, trenches and to you know do all kinds of slave labor uh, associated with the war effort. He could confiscate them, so he confiscated them as contraband. The next day, the the uh, Confederate uh, officer rode up to the fort, demanded a return on the property. Uh, Butler refused. He said they are um, they are contraband and they have been confiscated uh, and and held. And then, so Lincoln hears about this. Lincoln rides down to to Fort Monroe and sits in in Butler's office. Uh, you know, probably over a brandy or two, two two attorneys, and talks about the contraband decision and the sort of legal framework for that. Because this is technically a violation of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Right. I mean, yeah. And so, you know, Butler has come up with a slightly different legal theory around this. So, what I mean, Lincoln goes back, goes up to the, uh, to his little northern retreat in the northern part of Washington up there where the, the observatory is, and drafts the first version of the Emancipation Proclamation. Which he knew he was also out on sort of legal mushy ice uh, on as well, and so there was a direct connection between the contraband decision and the Emancipation Proclamation, and then the contraband decision spread, uh, and 
I think by the end of the war, uh, now Butler went on to, to fight down in New Orleans, but uh, Fort Monroe was protecting 15,000 or so, uh, which essentially wound up creating sort of the city of Hampton. And you have a HBCU there. And so there's this incredible uh, story and relationship. As you said, the beginning and the end of slavery are really bookended uh, at Monroe's. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I think at, at the core of this conversation, though, is the original understanding that the president, this, this first African-American president, yeah. had to be very careful absolutely. about these kinds of, of designations. And we needed to protect him. I Precisely. Mean, was, yeah, absolutely. We were not going to bring him a loser right off the bat. Absolutely. And, and, and in this particular case, I mean, because we'll t hopefully talk about this in, in detail, but this is in reaction to the 1996 decision by Grand Bill Staircase. Clinton. Yeah. Grand Staircase Escalante, an overreach of the federal government of basically designating federal land against the will of the people. Absolutely. That, that feeling, and, and the thing to remember, too, about at any administration that comes in, like, like that came in with Obama, is filled up with pre-Clinton people. Precisely. Okay. And they all remembered Grand Staircase Escalante. And so their warning to me, I mean, even... There was even a warning of don't even bring up the Antiquities Act in a group setting. Don't even mention it. So a lot of this work we had to really do sort of under the radar. I mean, we had to really work this and build that local community support uh, without ever revealing where this was going to wind up. So let's talk about the future. You, you were just recently appointed or you just established an institute at the University of California at Berkeley, my alma mater. Tell me the name of the institution and what are your plans for its future? Okay, so the, uh, the institute, it's the Berkeley Institute for Parks, People, and Biodiversity. The concept uh, of its goals are um, a couple. Um, one is to uh, bridge the work of a world-class academic institution, uh, Berkeley, but broadly the UC system, but specifically Berkeley, uh, with the needs of the field that, is, that are managing parks uh, and, and public lands. But within the subcategory of public lands, I'm looking at the protected areas, the areas that are really uh, have some sort of layer of protection on them. So, but I'm using the small p, so it's city parks, state parks, urban parks, national parks, all of that. And, and initially we're domestic, but we're definitely going to have an international flavor to it. So it's to bridge the work of, of research and the work of the field in applied science. So managers are struggling with issues like climate change. Uh, and so how do we manage in light of knowing we have all these new stressors coming from the climate? There are climate refugees, species being driven, uh, or will, will, will disappear, new species are arriving. How do we have the management policies around managing that? Um, and the academic world is, is producing some research in this space, but the field may not know about it because it's not being translated. It's not being converted into policy, into lay application. And then also that there are questions that the field is, is, needs to know about that the researchers are not putting any energy because they don't know. We haven't sat together in the same room and formulated those questions. So one of the roles of the Institute is a convener of the two entities 
around these big questions about how we're going to manage parks and public lands in the future in light of these stressors. And I hope to raise money to fund students that will be able to do that research. And I have particular interest in those students being representative of the demographics of the nation uh, and that we are building a new constituency uh, that looks like America and have deep core values around conservation and that could lead them into careers in academia or careers in land management or careers in the NGO community. I see, I mean, I'm the inaugural executive director. I have to build this thing out of whole cloth, uh, bridge all of these silos, um, you know, sort of implement this sort of, as I talked about in my talk, this unified vision for conservation of all the different silos working together uh, for uh, framing the future conservation. And so that's, that's a small task. Wow. <laughs> well, one of the things that you mentioned in your talk yesterday was the um, intergenerational transfer of power. Yeah. And, um, and someone actually made a caveat to that that suggested that it should be transformative but not transactional. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think that um, the, the current generation of conservation leaders, which are sort of in my boomer age class, you know, 60s, white male, you know, 70s, you know, into the, uh, that, you know, we came out of, the 60s, we came out of that sort of activist period uh, where the you know, civil rights movement was happening, Earth Day, uh, Vietnam War, uh, you know, we were sort of grew up in that sort of milieu, right? Silent Spring. The- yeah, yeah, and so there was this push uh, for our generation to assert ourselves uh, in, and, and new organizations were created and, you know, we marched, at, you know, against the oil and we, you know, we protested and, uh, the, you know, we were there for the, the saving of Alaska under Anilka and the Arctic Wildlife Refuge and, you know, all of that. And, and there's, a, to be blunt about it, in my view, that that generation is hanging on to that, to that leadership. And um, there, but there's a lot of lesson in there. There's an extraordinary body of knowledge and experience that needs to be conveyed but we also have to say you don't have to do it our way you know you don't have to you know live in the back country and you know eat freeze dried food and and do it in order to prove you're worthy uh, of these roles Uh, uh, that that would be that's a mistake uh, that what we can be is inspirational to the next generation, but we've got to be willing to uh, to nurture this next uh, the next generation. As I was telling uh, one one person, I said, you know, the the idea that you could go find some African American young person and bring them into the Sierra Club uh, uh, and expect them to just sort of stay and flourish and, you know, uh, is really a mistake. Uh, I mean, and obviously because it's not working. Uh, uh, What you need to do is help them build an organization. And so that's why when I was the director, we invested in the Greening Youth Foundation and Latino Outdoors and Elders Afro and, you know, just over and over again and, you know, as as in the last talk, you know, the mosaics and science and HBCUI, all of that. That was all Park Service 
in in partnership with extraordinary people. But we were we were giving them money. You know, this go go do good things. You know, you know, create this out of out of your vision. Uh, and no, don't let us impose. We, we can give you some ideas and some what's worked, what hasn't, but uh, the concept is this transforming, uh, this this transfer of power, and it's it's not transactional. It's uh, it's it's intended, in, at least in my view, uh, intended to be uh, a, a handing of the baton. But you know, I'm running with you for the first you know you know 50 yards. You've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks, Jim. John Jarvis is the author of the book, The Future of Conservation in America, A Chart for Rough Water. Add it to your 2019 reading list. It's definitely on mine. You can learn more about his work at the Institute for Parks, People, and Diversity at parks.berkeley.edu. For the Joy Trip Project, this is James Edward Mills. Music in this episode is provided by Jake Shimobukuro and Artlist. The Joycher Project is made possible thanks to the support of the Next 100 Coalition, a diverse group of environmental leaders dedicated to the preservation of public land and our natural resources through the next century and beyond. Learn more about its members and current projects at next100coalition.org. Thanks for listening, but as always, I want to hear from you. So please, send your questions, comments, and criticisms to info at joychipproject.com. Go be joyful. And until next time, take care.